So we were in the South this week, um, and we had a lot of fried food, a lot of meat. Uh, yeah, it was a. Uh, we ate really, really poorly, but it was such a special time. We really missed being here. We missed our city. We missed you guys. We missed Trinity Life. Um, uh, talked to talked to a few different, uh, so many people down there, but just a wide range of people from. Uh, just people who are involved in, in church, people who aren't believers, to millionaire entrepreneurs who I wanted them to give us money. Um, <laughs> but all these people we talked, this is wide, wide range, and all of them were just intrigued by what God is doing here, whether they believed in a God or whether they didn't believe in a God, whether they were considered themselves Christians or not, they heard our story, and they wanted to get behind it. They wanted to be a part of what God is doing up here. So I want you guys to be encouraged by that. God is doing something special in Toronto. God is doing something special here at Trinity Life. And when we talk about it uh, with with people, um, like we did this week, uh, they get excited about it, and they want to be a part of it. So um, glad you guys are here. Glad you're a part of it. Glad we get to do this together. Great to be back with with family here at Trinity Life, um, felt like felt like home when we saw you guys this morning. So, uh, we've been going through our Advent series. So last week, uh, Daniel preached and talked about the younger brother. Today, as he said, we're talking about the the elder brother. Um, this is from Luke 15, and uh, this is a story of two sons. So let me give you guys a little context before we jump right in. The Gospel of Luke is is one of the gospels. Uh, basically, gospel just means good news. It's one of the gospels in in the New Testament that talk about the life of Christ. So Luke 15 is Jesus teaching, and he's he's presenting basically an illustration. He's giving a story, what they call a parable. And <clears throat> Luke's gospel is really focused on uh, God's love. It's focused on what God's love means, what it means for those who are outcasts, what it means for those who are considered sinners. Um, in Luke's gospel, there's what's called the Lucan Four. There's, uh, and, and when you see sinners in, in this, in this book, it's talking about these four. It's talking about the crippled, the blind, the lame, and the poor. That's what's like when, when you see sinners, it's referring to that, that group. And so, um, Luke really focuses on Jesus coming for that group. Not those who are, uh, not those who are praised as righteous necessarily, but those who society has outcasts, who society has, has said, you know, you guys have no part in, in this religious system. And Jesus has come and he said, let's, let's redefine what true faith is and let's redefine what, uh, what sinners are. And that's what the point of this parable is. So leading up to this, uh, a couple of things happen, um, that lead up to this point. But Jesus is teaching two groups. You see that in, in the first verse in chapter 15. He's teaching tax collectors and sinners, and he's teaching Pharisees and scribes. And he's putting sinners in two categories here. He's saying that you guys call the tax collectors and the sinners over here, uh, these outcasts, you, th- those are the sinners. And the Pharisees and scribes, you guys are the religious right. You guys are the ones who... These, these guys are the ones who are always at church. These guys are the ones who are, um, who are, uh, you know, making sure people see them praying, making sure people see them reading their Bible, all these things. And he's saying, no, 
you guys are sinners as well. And, and this parable is really him teaching that latter group. He's not really teaching the tax collectors and sinners here. He's actually really focused on this latter group over here. Um, but before he goes into the parable of these two sons, he talks about two other parables. One is about a lost coin, and one is about a lost sheep. And the point of all three of these parables comes in at the end of each parable, verse 7, 10, and 32, 35, one of those. Um, and he says that uh, the point is, when someone has lost something, and then they find something, uh, we see joy. We see tremendous joy. So he points that on all three parables. And he goes from a coin to a sheep to now people. And he brings it kind of home to us. Because he says, he's saying like there's one thing when you, when we're talking about material possessions. It's another thing when we're talking about, about people. And in this story that we're about to talk about, Luke 15, the story of two lost sons, which Tradition has called it the story of the prodigal sons. We've, we focus on the one who's very wasteful and the younger brother. Um, but we forget about the, the older brother. Um, but the parable starts off with Jesus saying there's two sons. There's a man who had two sons. So the story is incomplete if we only talk about one son, which is why we're talking about the second son today. So um, this joy is going to come forth. And he says, let's, let's talk about this. So in this story, there's two sons. There's a father. And it represents, the father represents God. So, uh, and both sons are trying to get out from under authority. They're trying, they're, they're rebelling against the father's authority here. So, I, let me just describe to you the joy real quick. Um, cause that's, that's the main point here. We're not going to talk about that as much today as we are, uh, next week and the following weeks. But, Luke is really trying to point out this, and, and Jesus is saying there's so much joy. Um, there's, there's probably four movies I've cried on in my life. Cool Runnings. <laughs> Have you guys seen that movie? I mean, who hasn't cried on that movie, right? Uh, <laughs> um, Braveheart. Okay, Freedom. I mean, Braveheart, that's just like, um, yeah, I mean, if you didn't cry on Braveheart, you don't have a soul, probably. Um, uh, Tangled, have you guys seen? <laughs> so, if you haven't seen Tangled, it really focuses on the father-daughter relationship, and being a father of two daughters, I was sitting there watching it with them. And I'm like, <laughs> like trying to hold back my sobs. And Emerson looks over and she's like, Daddy, are you okay? Because <laughs> there's just this one part where it's just like really heart, heart wrenching. Um, and then Beauty and the Beast. So two Disney movies, I don't know, and two animated movies. <laughs> so Beauty and the Beast though, uh, I remember seeing in the theater, uh, growing up. And, uh, what's that? <laughs> and and at the end, I hope I don't ruin it for anybody. I mean, it's an old movie. It's a fairy tale. So at the end, I'm not like Daniel. I'm not going to wo- ruin Warrior twice. So I listened to Daniel's sermon last week, and I forgot what he's, how he ruined Warrior the first time. And when you mentioned Warrior, I skipped it. To, I skipped your whole illustration. <laughs> um, so Beauty and the Beast at the end, of course, the beast, the beast uh, dies. And I thought in the theater when I was watching, I thought he was dead. 
I was like, movie's over, let's start packing up and leave. And I'm crying. Like, I didn't know the story. And, and then he comes back to life, and it was like one of the most inspirational, <laughs> inspirational moments of my life. <laughs> I'm like, yeah! He doesn't just come back as a beast, right? He comes back as, as a man. So, this is like the story of, of the prodigal son. When you hear the father at the end talk about it, he says, my son, he was dead, and now he's alive. It's different from finding a lost coin or a lost sheep. He says, I thought you were dead. Like, you were, you were dead to me, and now I find you're alive. That's, that's, what, uh, that's the emotion that's evoked in this story uh, from the father's perspective. We'll talk about that a little more next week. Um, and that's how God feels. So what God has lost, what the Father has lost in this story, isn't a thing, it's a relationship. And that's what God wants from you this morning. He doesn't want things from you. He doesn't want um, you to do things. He wants a relationship with you. That's, this is what the elder brother has missed. So um, Jesus is about to show these two groups that we talked about reckless expectations last week. Today we're talking about rigid expectations. He's about to show these two groups that reckless or rigid, both these expectations are sinful expectations that are not beneficial uh, at all. And rigid expectations may even be worse than reckless expectations. I'll explain later. So um, today you stepped into my office. Um, this is what I tell the girls all the time. I'm like, step into my office. Um, <laughs> I'm going to talk about, I'm going to give you a diagnosis this morning. We're going to diagnose you this morning, give you a prognosis, and then give you a little taste of the remedy. Um, I am a doctor after all. Uh, according to some of my nieces, I'm not the kind of doctor that helps people. Um, they don't get that doctors like Shirley just delay the inevitable. And doctors like me prepare hearts for eternity. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, is Shirley here? Okay, Shirley's not here. Tell her not to listen to this. Um, so, but, uh, but we're gonna, we're gonna do a diagnosis this morning. Uh, we're gonna talk about the older son. Um, some of you guys are probably thinking, I'm not an elder brother type. The older brother type in the scriptures, in this story, is very moralistic. He's very rigid. He's very religious. He's very, um, uh, yeah, all those things. He's, he's very boxed in. Some of you guys are probably thinking, right off the bat, that's not me. I'm a Christian. I'm, uh, I'm saved by grace. Um, you know, Christ has found me. I'm found in Christ. My identity is in Christ. But the thing is, if you, if you were saved and transformed out of an elder brother mentality, that mentality and that attitude is always going to be there to creep back in. Okay? And you're always going to, maybe, that's going to be your first temptation to fall back into this attitude. Um, and that's the thing about the elder brother. We see the younger brother, um, as Kelly was just reading, he lived his life recklessly, he spent it on whatever, um, he wasted his whole inheritance, um, we see him, we're like, oh, I'm not like him. He's living by sins of passion. And he's out there in front of everybody. Everyone sees his sins publicly. Um, the older brother's over here, and he looks great. He looks good from the outside. But his, his sins aren't of passion. They're of attitude. They're inside. They're, they're um, sins that are just tearing him up inside. And so 
if you are a believer in here this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, um, and you came out of that, that's, that's something that's always going to be a temptation for you to, to go back into. You may be thinking in here, if you're not a believer, if, you're, if you don't consider yourself a Christian, um, I'm not an elder brother type because I'm not a Christian. I'm not religious. I'm not, um, I'm not very, I want to consider myself, I, I have good morals, but I want to consider myself moralistic. Um, but the thing is, you can be those things without a religion. You can be religious without a religion. You can be moralistic without being a Christian. Um, and and uh, those those things may be very much uh, part of who you are now. So I'm going to shed some light on that this morning as we walk through this passage, give you a little diagnosis and prognosis. Um, look at verses 25 and 26. If you can pull those up, Curtis. Um, we see the older son. It says, the older son is in the field, and as he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Now remember, the younger sons are turned home, and the father has celebrated it. He's so excited the younger son is here that he's killed the fattened calf, which was only reserved for um, really big occasions. Um, he's put, uh, he's given him a ring, a robe. Uh, he's treating him like he's a king. Older brother, older brother over here is working in the field, slaving away. Um, and he goes, he goes and he gets a servant, it says in verse 26, and he says, what's, what's going on? Um, we see there uh, that the elder brother doesn't learn from his father. He summons a servant. He doesn't approach his father. Um, and the question we should ask is why? Why doesn't he go to his father and ask? What's he, what's he afraid of here? Um, so the first question I want to ask you guys this morning uh, is, and this may seem like a, a weird question, but this is going to diagnose you. This will be an indication for whether you're an elder brother or not. Uh, what is your prayer life like? What is your prayer life like? Whether you're a Christian or not, not a Christian. My parents, my parents weren't Christians until they were in their 40s, um, but they would say they had some sort of prayer life before that. My mom being a Buddhist and my dad being nothing. Um, they would say, hearing their stories, they, they talk about a prayer life before then. Um, just because they thought there was just something out there. Um, and so even though my mom comes from a non-theistic uh, religious system. Um, so uh, what's your prayer life like? That's, that's the question. Um, yeah, hey, throw up the first, yeah, throw up the first Keller quote. Uh, this is a quote from Tim Keller. He's a pastor in uh, New York City. And he has, he's written a book called The Prodigal God, which is just all about this story. He says, perhaps the clearest system, the clearest symptom of you being an elder brother is a dry prayer life. He says, though elder brothers may be diligent in prayer, there's no wonder, awe, intimacy, or delight in their conversations with God. Their prayers are almost wholly taken up with a recitation of needs and petitions. They're not spontaneous. They're not joyful praise. In fact, many elder brothers, for all their religiosity, do not have much of a private prayer life at all unless things aren't going well in their lives. Then they may devote themselves to a great deal of it until things get better again. And this reveals that their main goal in prayer is to control their environment rather than to delve into an intimate relationship with God who loves them. Okay? Is your prayer life dry? Do you go to God for things? Or do you go for a relationship? When are the times that you draw near to the Father? When do you seek the Father most? 
And then how do you speak to the Father when you do, when you do draw near to Him? How do you speak to Him? Those are indications. The elder brother here thinks his position is based on performance. He's out there slaving away in the field. He's performing. He's trying to do things. He's trying to get the Father to notice him. His relationship isn't based on presence. And that's the difference. Is your relationship with God based on performance or presence? The, the God that Jesus is saying, uh, is talking about here, the God that Jesus is, isn't a God of performance. He's a God of presence. He just wants you to draw close to him. He says, uh, in the, the scriptures say, if we draw close to God, to God, he'll draw close to us. That invitation is always there. So, um, performance-based or, or presence-based. Um, my relationship with my dad is awesome. Uh, I just spent a few days with him um, in the Carolinas, and where it was beautiful and had sun, and we are at the beach. It was awesome. <laughs> they live uh, outside of Myrtle Beach. And, um, uh, yeah, just a, a great time. I noticed last year, or maybe it was early this year, I can't remember, um, my dad's getting older, and I value his opinion. I respect him greatly. Um, I know he has a lot to offer me in terms of wisdom, experience, advice, all those things. So I told him, um, I guess it's been about a year now, that I want to talk to him once a week and just have an hour with him and just talk about things. Um, before, my relationship with my dad was great, but it wasn't intimate. Like, doing this with my dad has made it intimate. Like, because we've lived, we've lived far away from each other for a long time. Um, well, we've only seen each other a few times a year, a few times a year for the past, I don't know, 15 years. Um, and so, uh, once a week, well, it started out once a week, now it's like once every three weeks, um, because <laughs> it's just busy. <laughs> um, but once a week, I would call my dad up, or he would call me up, and we would just talk. And I would just be in his presence, knowing that what I would get from his presence. That's what the Father wants from us. He just wants us to be in his presence. He doesn't care, like, my dad doesn't care, I mean, he wants things to go well here. He doesn't care, like, how things are going here, uh, in, in terms of, like, um, it's performance-based, like, I need my dad's approval. He just wants to be with me. Um, that's the Father for us. That's what the Father wants from us. Uh, second question um, for your diagnosis and prognosis. How, how do you handle criticism? Look at verse 27 and 28 here. So, um, the father says, your brothers come back, or the, the servant says, your brothers come back. And then the elder brother, his response is in verse 28. He says, he was angry. That word there, um, in, in the original language means like something is boiling inside him. So, it's not like, oh man, I'm just upset about it. No, something is boiling inside him right now. He's, angry, deeply bitter and angry, like full of resentment, um, years of resentment, apparently. So he's angry, and he refuses to go in. He feels like, he feels like he's being criticized for something, because his father is throwing a party for his, his younger, his younger brother over here, who's just wasted the inheritance, um, and here he is living the perfect life, um, the great life, the good life, um, good son, and he's not getting anything for it. He's slaving away in the field, and he feels like the father's criticizing his life. Um, Tim Keller says this. He says, another sign 
is that criticism from others doesn't just hurt your feelings, it devastates you. This is because your sense of God's love is abstract and has little real power in your life. And you need the approval of others to bolster your sense of value. Are you controlled by the question, how do I look to others? That's the elder brother. His question that, that dictates the way he does things, the way he thinks, is how do I look to others? How are people viewing me right now by what I'm doing? What does this look like? If I do this, what does this look like to my neighbor? What does this look like to, um, are they going to approve me for this? And that's what drives his relationship with the father. To the point, to the point where we're going to see he doesn't even really have a relationship with the father. He has a relationship with the father's things. Okay? So this brings us to the next question. Um, why are you trying to live a good life? It's not bad to live a good life. But why are you trying to live a good life? Why are you trying to be moral? Why are you trying to um, have good things? Um, and those things aren't bad. But what are your motivations? Here's two indicators of ill motives. One is you live by control. Look at verse 29. It says, So he's angry, he refuses to go in. His father comes out and pleads with him. Verse 29, his father answers, Look, these many years, or he answers his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. So he, he hyperbolizes here. Like he, he puts like, he grossly exaggerates. He's like, I've never disobeyed you, ever. Yet you never gave me a young goat, like even a, a little young goat, um, that I might celebrate with my friends. Oh, elder brother here, He's in the field, um, slaving away, and you see, when, he's, when he talks about his relationship with the Father, he talks about it in, in terms of servitude. He says, I've served you all my life. I've worked for you all my life. And he has no joyous recognition of it. He's not like, oh, I'm just serving the Lord. I'm just serving the Father, you know. He's like, no, I expected to get something out of this. I expected that if I did this, you would treat me this way. I expected if I acted like this, you would give me these types of things. And here, my younger, my younger brother is out there. He squanders everything. He comes home, and you treat him like he's a king. That's what we hear the, the elder brother saying. But what he's doing is he's missing out on the party. He's missing out on the entire celebration. He's missing out on really... Not what the younger, not what the father wants to just give the younger brother, but what he's done for the, the, the father didn't throw the party and celebrate just for the younger brother. It was for everybody. He invited everybody. The only one that wasn't there was this guy, this elder brother. He's out there in the field. And he's missing out on it. He's missing out on what the father wants to give him. What are you missing out on that the father wants to give you? Because you're, you want to live by control, because you're seeking approval, because your relationship is performance-based, not presence-based. The elder brother here, he says, he never disobeyed. He expects the opposite. He expects recognition and praise for it. 
Uh, Tim Keller says this in his book. He says, this is actually the first sign. He says, the first sign you have an elder brother spirit is that when your life doesn't go as you want, you aren't just sorrowful, but you're deeply angry and bitter. He says, elder brothers believe that if they live a good life, they should get a good life. That God owes them a smooth road if they try very hard to live up to standards. So what happens is, if you're this type of person, if you're an elder brother type, what happens is, when you're living up, when you think you've been living up to the standard like this guy, you think you've been doing everything you, uh, you, you can do, and you think you're living a good life, when something goes wrong, you're angry with God. You're just angry with God. And when you haven't been living up to the standard, and things go wrong, you're angry with yourself, and you punish yourself. Did you guys get that? When you're trying to live up to the standard, you're trying to be as moralistic as you can be, as religious as you can be, and you don't, and something goes wrong, you're angry with God because you think you've been doing what He expects. But then when you haven't been doing it and something goes wrong, you're angry with yourself because you know and you think you know you haven't been doing what God expects. It's wrong expectations. Very, very rigid expectations. And you can't handle suffering when it comes along. Because you're not, it shows you're not in control. Because you're results oriented. You're performing to get something and you can't handle that, that, uh, uh, something happened that you weren't expecting. And so you live, the, you live in this life of perpetual anger. Secondly, you also live by comparison. Look at what the elder brother does in verse 30. He says, but when this son of yours, so he distances himself, he says, this son of yours, he kind of puts them in a different category, who has devoured your property. I mean, he's, again, he's grossly exaggerating. here. He's saying he's, he devoured your property like... Um, I don't know, like locusts or something would in the Old Testament. Um, he's like, you, he devoured your property with prostitutes. And he, and he points out something here, prostitutes, for instance. He points that out. Um, but nowhere does it say the younger brother did that. Nowhere, if you look in earlier, in the earlier passage, Jesus didn't say the younger brother wasted his life sleeping around with prostitutes. Um, the elder brother, this is his projection onto the younger brother. This is his projection saying, uh, look at, look at what he's, look at what he's doing. Look at that life he lived. Um, the thing is, we tend to do this. If you're an elder brother type, you tend to do this. Um, you know, this is probably something, uh, that the elder brother secretly desires or has imposed on the younger brother. And that's why he does that. Uh, think about this. Like, for those of you in school or have been through school, um, it might sound like, well, so what? She graduated valedictorian. I didn't want that. You know, she probably didn't have any fun anyways <laughs> while she was in school. Or at work and maybe like, I don't care that he got that promotion. You know, he probably worked too hard and he probably uh, kissed up to the boss too much. Like, I'm not that type of person. But secretly, that's who you are. Secretly, you wanted that promotion. Secretly, you wanted to be the one to be the valedictorian. Um... But you just cast it off aside, uh, like, like he's doing. Um, at church, this happens, you know. In, in a body of believers, this, this can happen. Um, in your family, this can happen. Um, in your marriage, uh, you know, and just, just 
But you're projecting your own secret desires out and saying, no, that's, that's not the case. The older brother's doing this. The big problem is he doesn't know. He doesn't know he's like this. He has no idea. And he's blind to the fact. And that's why, that's why this is more dangerous than the one who's just living by sinful passion and reckless living as the younger brother was. Because the elder brother thinks he's the good guy. He doesn't realize that he's just as sinful, just as depraved as his brother is. That he needs Jesus, that he needs the Father, that he needs grace and forgiveness just as much. He's just blind to it. I mean, think about it. From the outside, he's the one with a steady job, the steady income. He looks dependable. He works hard. He obeys his Father. All those things. So even to us from the outside, he looks like the good one. We think he's the good son. But inside, he's a cesspool of misplaced intentions and sinful attitudes, secret passions, ill motives that are just killing him inside. Remember, he's boiling up with anger. This anger has been simmering for a while, and now it's boiling over. Um, And when you live by comparison, you just lack self-awareness. When you live by comparison to others, you lack self-awareness. You don't, you're not introspective. You're not looking at yourself. And he's just used to pointing the finger at others. You're like the Pharisee in Luke 18 that thanks God. There's, Jesus tells the story of a Pharisee who goes in and he, into the temple to pray. And he thanks God that he's not like that guy. <laughs> he's like, thank you, dear God, that I'm not like this sinner over here, that I'm a great guy. Like, who does that? <laughs> um, that's what the elder brother type does. He thanks God that he's not like those people. Um, because he's, he thinks he's better. Um, I'm gonna skip, uh, I'm gonna skip that next quote. Um, just think about it. Just think what your motivation is for doing good. Is it to look good, to look better than others? Um, are you seeking the relationship of the Father or the things of the Father? I mean, that's a, that's a question for you this morning. What are you seeking there? Um, and this last question. Uh, that we see from the older brother. Do you accept grace and forgiveness? Do you accept grace and forgiveness? You see in verses 31 and 32. Um, he says, the father says this to him. This is his response. He says, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And it just ends there. And that's it. And we don't know what the older brother does. We don't know if he goes into the party. We don't know if he accepts grace and forgiveness. The problem is he's not accepting grace and forgiveness for himself. But he's not accepting it on his brother's behalf either. And he's definitely not dispensing it. He's definitely not, not giving it out. If you're that type of person, do you know why you can't forgive others? Do you know why you can't accept accept forgiveness and grace? It's because you see yourself better than others. It's because of pride. And it's also because of lack of faith. So Jesus in, in Luke 17, just after this passage, he says, if someone sins against you, forgive them. Like, that's easy enough. He says, well, if they come back and do it again, forgive them. 
If they come back and do it again, forgive them. If they come back and do it again seven times, forgive them seven times. If they keep on doing it, keep on forgiving them. That's when it gets tough. And the, the disciples respond, it's kind of funny, you can see them just like crying out. They respond, increase our faith, <laughs> because they realize they can't do it. They can't do it on their own power. And they say, we don't have faith enough to forgive people when they sin against us that many times, especially if it's the same sin. And Jesus says that's the only type of grace and forgiveness that the Father can give. But you have to accept it first. Christianity, uh, I think from the outside, uh, Christianity is seen a lot like the elder brother. Like I talked to someone last week um, who came across uh, a friend who said, um, and I don't, I just don't uh, understand you Christians. Why would you want to put yourself in this like religious, moralistic system? Like, why do you want to? And she completely misunderstood it. Um, from the outside, she's thinking, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and you're a Christian. That's not the Christian faith, guys. Um, but from the outside, people see, people see that, and they don't, they don't want any part of that. Um, but even on the inside, because we can't accept grace and forgiveness, we tend to withhold grace and forgiveness to each other even in the family of God, even in the household of God. Is that your version of Christianity? Is that the type of Christianity you've been living? This elder brother type? Jesus is saying, that's a sinful type. That's not, that's not what I came to give you guys. I didn't come to give you guys this moralistic system. I came to free you in it. He also said, I didn't come to abolish it. He says, I fulfilled it for you. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish all these morals and stuff. He says, I fulfilled it. And in me, you can be free. In me, you can have identity. In me, you can have destiny. And I'm not giving you a set of rules and principles to live by. I'm saying, live through me, and you'll, you'll live by those things. So the parable ends like that. Um, it ends with this kind of climax. Um, and it leaves the conclusion open-ended, um, which we don't know. We don't know if the elder brother goes in. We don't know if he accepts the love. Um, if he accepts grace and forgiveness, none of that. Um, we just see the Father pleading with him to come in. You guys know who Billy Graham is, right? Um, the greatest evangelist in the past, I don't know, how old is that guy now? 90? Um, greatest evangelist in the past 100 years. Um, do you guys know who Charles Templeton is? Um, these guys were um, two two friends, two evangelists. Uh, Charles Templeton is actually born in Toronto, born in Toronto, raised in Toronto. Met Billy Graham while they were in school in the States, um, and became like this evangelistic duo. They do tours together. They saw people come to Christ together. Lives transformed together. Um, Charles Templeton came back to Toronto, started, started uh, Avenue Road Church of the Nazarene on Avenue Road, which turned into the, the church that A.W. Tozer pastored, um, uh, which is now uh, uh, Bayview Glen up in North York, I believe. Um, and the church is actually a Hare Krishna temple right now on Avenue Road. Um, 
but uh, Charles Templeton was one of the co-founders of, of that church. A um, few years after, uh, he says farewell to God. Um, that's the title of his autobiography. Um, he becomes an atheist. Actually, he would say he's an agnostic. Um, he says, I, basically, he would say, I, I can't know that there's a God, so I can never believe that there is a God. So he takes that agnosticism uh, and pushes it into atheism. He says, well, there, there isn't one. Um, these guys, I mean, everyone thought Charles Templeton was going to change the world. Because Billy Graham and, and, and Charles Templeton were together, and they thought, Charles Templeton, he's the guy who's going who's gonna to change things. He's the guy who's going to turn the world upside down. Um, they thought Billy was just like over here. I mean, Billy Graham from, from the South. <laughs> and he ends up, Billy Graham ends up being the one to, to change the world um, in many ways. And Templeton, so he moves back to Toronto, and he does this interview. He died in 2001. He does this interview in, in the year 2000 and with a guy named Lee Strobel. Templeton worked for CTV. He was a journalist. He was a broadcaster. He was the editor for McLean Magazine for a while. He's done a lot of um, great things in, in Toronto and, and Canada. Um, I mean, very wealthy guy, uh, but died in Toronto 2001. 2000, a guy named Lee Strobel goes to interview him. Lee Strobel was a or is, uh, but he was a former um, atheist former legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, uh, turned Christian. Um, he started investigating Christianity because his wife came to faith. Uh, his wife came to, came to Christ, and then he was like, well, I guess I'll just check it out. So he took a very journalistic mindset to it, just started asking people questions. One of the first interviews he did was with Charles Templeton, and, he's, and he went to Charles, and he said, you know, why, uh, basically, why did you do a complete 180? Why did you go from uh, evangelist to apostate? Why did you go from proclaiming this message to saying that this, mes- this message is worthless now? Um, and he didn't, ex- he didn't, uh, he wasn't, I don't know if Lee Strobel was ready for what he got. He got, got, got. Templeton gave his reasons, you know, um, very trivial reasons why he, why he uh, rejected Christianity. Um, I mean, nothing like overly thought through or, or anything. I mean, from just very, from the interview, just very cursory. Um, he's been thinking about it his whole life, but from the interview perspective, just very cursory things like, oh, why couldn't wrap my mind around this? Why couldn't wrap my mind around that? Um, but as the interview goes on, he asks him about Billy Graham. And he's like, I love Billy Graham. One of my friends... We'll be friends forever. Um, I don't think he's a fool for what he believes because I believe what he believes makes him a better person. Um, but I just can't believe that. And I think what he's, what he's telling people is just a bunch of lies. Um, but he's like, but he said, Billy Graham is the real deal. He's a genuine Christian. If there's anyone I know who's a Christian, it's this guy. Um, and I respect him for that. Um, and he's changed, he's changed lives and he's made the world a better place. So he recognizes all the objective evidence there. Um, and then Lee Strobel asks him about, about Jesus. And he says, he says two things. 
He says Jesus is the most important human being to ever live. He doesn't believe he's God, but he believes he's the most important human being to ever live. He says, everything that I've learned that's pure in my life, everything that I've learned that is good in my life, I learned from Jesus. Everything I, I learned that is um, noteworthy, praise, anything was from Jesus. I learned how to be a good husband from Jesus. I learned how to be a good father. I learned how to be, um, I learned how to work well. All those things he would say I learned from Jesus. I just don't, I believe like Jesus existed, but he'd say I don't believe that there's a God. Um, and the second thing is, Lee Strobel kind of presses him a little bit more on that. And he's like, that's kind of odd. Like, why would you say that if you don't believe in the crux? I mean, he's the crux of the Christian faith. Why would you say that? He doesn't have an answer, but what he says is, you know, if I, if he says, if I can put it this way, and he's got one foot in the grave at this point. He has Alzheimer's, one foot in the grave. He dies a year later or months later. He says, if I may put it this way, I miss him. I miss the relationship. I miss what he brought to my life, even though I don't believe in any of it. I miss it. So he recognizes that there's grace and forgiveness, but he just couldn't accept it. He just couldn't accept it. Jesus defines, and Ben, you can come up. Jesus defines his mission in Luke 19.10 as coming to save that which was lost. So these parables represent Jesus' mission. He says, I've come to save that which is lost. I've, I've come to make it found. I've come to take it from death to life. The problem is we don't know we're lost. We don't know we're drowning. Jesus, Jesus sees us. We're drowning in this ocean of, of sin and solitude. Jesus is on this boat, and he's saying, just come aboard. Just come aboard. Some of you guys probably see, some of you guys probably see a prison. Like, oh, that boat's just a prison. You know, it's, it's, it's rigid. It's going to take me away from, you know, these, these ocean waters. Um, rather than the boat being freedom. Some of you guys probably see the boat as just a place of comfort. Oh, yeah, I, I can do this because it's, it's comfortable. Rather than uh, something to explore the ocean on. But Jesus is saying, just come aboard. Like, accept grace and forgiveness. You're, you, the problem is you don't know that you're drowning and the, and the waves are coming. And the boat, if it's going to represent Christianity... Oftentimes, to our city, it doesn't look like something they want to come aboard on. Because we're, we're projecting something that isn't the Christian faith. Imagine if, imagine if when the younger brother came home, the one to greet him wasn't the father, but was the elder brother. What if the elder brother had greeted the younger brother? And the younger brother's coming home. He's got his, his speech rehearsed. He's saying, Father, please forgive me. I'll do whatever I can to make it up to you. What the father ends up saying to him is, you don't have to do anything. He says, you're my child. You're my son. But if the elder brother had saw him from a distance and, and cut him off, he would have said, man, dad's really upset with you. 
You ruined our lives. You took our inheritance and you squandered it. We don't want to see your face around here ever again. Unfortunately, that's sometimes the image of Christianity we project to our city, the elder brother one, where, where we say, God doesn't want you because look at what you're doing with your life. Look at what you've done. Instead of saying, no, you're a child of God. He doesn't care what you've done. You don't have to make up for it. You don't have to do things to make it right because you're right in Jesus. You're right in Him. And all the Father wants to give you is love and grace and forgiveness, not judgment and condemnation. The problem with elder brothers is they've avoided sins of passion, so they think they're good. But all the while, these sins of attitude are just left unchecked. They're running rampant in him. And Jesus is saying that reckless expectations and rigid expectations, out of those two, probably rigid ones are the worst because you're just blinded to, to this grace and forgiveness. But what's awesome is he offers us this hope that there is grace, there is forgiveness, and all we have to do is accept it. A father isn't just waiting there. He's looking in the distance for you. And we'll talk about that uh, next week. But it waits for you. And he's just waiting for you there. So let's pray. Father, thank you that... Thank you that your forgiveness is... It's just there. It's for us. Thank you that you are for us. That you don't care about the things that I've done in my past because now I'm in Christ. And in your sight, I'm pure, I'm holy, I'm blameless. And you want me to live in that. Father, thank you that the, the sins that I've, I've committed, the, short, the shortfalls I've, I've done even yesterday, like you've already forgotten about because I'm pure and holy and blameless in Christ. I just pray that over everybody this morning, whether they are far from you or whether they have been a Christian for many years, that they would realize that your grace and your forgiveness are always there. All we need to do is accept them. I pray for the mentality that and just the knowledge and the, the awareness that, that you're here for us and that you're just waiting for us. So, Father, we wait on you now. Spirit, let your presence fill us, fill this place. And I pray that you would draw others to you right now, that they would know your love, they would know your grace and your forgiveness. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.